Well, good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a new day. Thank you for a beautiful spring-like day. We thank you for the promises you give us and how you remind us of resurrection and life and uh, the promise of the future. We thank you for this church. Thank you for your churches everywhere, the congregations that are gathering all over the world. Uh, we pray your blessings on each and every one where your name is lifted up, where your people are uh, fed and nurtured, and uh, where your kingdom advances. Help us, Lord, to be humble and faithful and teachable with uh, hearts that are eager to hear your word, uh, to make amends in our lives so that we might grow and know further blessings. And uh, we pray your help in particular regarding raising our children, our grandchildren, that we might uh, continue to advance your kingdom through the generations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're just going to, the way I'm handling this, just go till we run out of time, take up where we left off and uh, move forward. I want to continue, though, this morning. We, we started talking about the necessity of children learning to show respect, respect to everyone, uh, specifically to honor and obey father and mother. But then that extends because they're in this position as children where they don't have authority, where they're not in charge of anybody or um, uh, well, they're not in charge of anybody. What we gradually begin to do as they get capable is to put them in charge of things. Things are less valuable than people. Uh, so uh, we teach them to clean their room or to take care of something or to have a chore or a task. If those things get broken or messed up, it's not as critical uh, as it will be if they're in charge of people. And so I want you to think about that as, uh, as you train your children, that how they handle things has a relationship to how they will handle people. Um, so I don't want to carry that analogy too far, but it's it just like we're going to learn that play is related to work. Children learn to play, uh, whether they play house or play war or play out in the yard or play uh, all kinds of things, building things or uh, all, all the things they do in play. They learn community. They learn about law. They learn about grace. They learn about what do you do when you get mad. They learn about cheating. They learn about all kinds of things that are related to the adult world. So these are not just things to keep them occupied and busy uh, and out of our hair, we should see all the things that are in their lives as related to what they're becoming. And there's a relationship to that. And there will be a transition in those things. And those transitions are not overnight. You don't go from being a child to being an adult uh, overnight. That's, that's going to be a, a gradual transition. There will be ups and downs and starts and stops and mistakes and we want a lot of grace that is extended in the process of teaching the rules. So you, part of the rules, by the way, part of the law of God includes grace. That's part of what he commands. Mercy, kindness, gentleness, 
Self-control. All the fruits of the Spirit are also part of the law of God. In fact, Galatians 5.22 is part of the law of God because it's God's Word. It's the rules that He gave us. So there's a lot to manage here as, as parents or uh, those who do have authority. It's a big responsibility but so keep in mind the relationship of those two things. What you're tra- you remember, you're raising adults, so you want to teach them mercy and grace and kindness, along with yes, and you still need to uh, follow the rules. You still need to tell the truth. You still need to do your chores and do them well. Why? Why would you need to do your chores well? What is that an expression of? Service, which is love. It's how you love God. You honor and obey your parents by doing the dishes and doing them well, which serves your communion, your family, the community, which you benefit from, right? So when everybody does what they're called to do, and they do it well, and they do it with a good attitude, and they do it with gratitude, uh, they take correction well. They, when there is conflict, they get it corrected and, and restore communion. That's what it's about. It's about love. That will involve repentance and forgiveness and all these things that God has in his word. So it's not just a list of rules. It's not just about having well-behaved children. We want well-behaved children, but we want the hearts of well-behaved children as well. So let's come back to this issue of honoring and obeying father and mother. So respecting of parents is not to be taken lightly. In fact, that's kind of the central thing, parents, you want to teach your children, starting with you, that they're going to, that they honor and obey you. So let's talk for a second. What does honor entail? Throw out some things. How would children demonstrate that they're honoring their parents. Obedience is a little simpler. You know, pick that up. Pick it up. Okay? Respectful words. What else? Deference. So that'd be humility. Um, Attitude. Facial expressions. So you can... You can belie respect, right? You can say the right words, but then betray that with a sideways glance, uh, rolling of the eyes. Should you, you know, somebody just stomp their foot and says no, uh, that's an open rebellion that usually parents know that's something we discipline for, but what about the rolling of the eyes? That's also something that we are training in. And remember, let's, let's stop and talk. We'll get to a full section on discipline, but I'll just remind you that discipline is a range of things. Discipline can be a word of correction. It could be a look of your own. Um, just, you know, your children learn that a certain look from you is a form of correction. It's a form of discipline. A word, stop it. Maybe it's one word. Maybe it's a gentle word. Okay. But there, there's a whole range of words. And you don't want to sin with your words, but there's a whole range of words that are not sinful. And then there's corporal punishment. There's other, other ways of bringing about pressure, which is what discipline is. So you've got authority 
And authority is pretty worthless if authority has no means of enforcing the rules of that authority. And enforcement means some form of discomfort. Again, just a, a countenance. That's the way uh, Westminster talks about superiors and inferiors, that uh, what, you, what you don't want is a, a frown from your parents. Your child should desire the uplifting countenance of a parent. Approval. And disapproval, which can be shown again with facial expression, uh, as well as words, is a, is a form of discomfort. I don't want that. For one thing, you know, they learn, hopefully learn quickly that that's not where your dis- disapproval is going to stop. You're not just going to give them, uh, the look. But if that doesn't correct the problem, you have other tools Uh, of discipline that are available to you. Why? Because you love your child. Not because you're mad, not because they're aggravating you, not because they've embarrassed you. Uh, Those those are going to be temptations for parents, but that's not the the biblical motive for correction or discipline. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So love is always the motive. I desire to see you do the right thing and to have the right attitude and to use your body, your facial expressions, your body language in a manner that honors God. And the way you do that as a child is you honor me, your father or your mother. That's where that starts. Now, then, of course, they have other, all the other people in their life they also need to honor. So... God expects the honor and obedience of children toward their parents as much as he expects his laws governing the responsibility of parents to be obeyed. So uh, children have, need to obey what I tell them to do, uh, but they also need to do it with honor. To honor and obey parents simply means that a child uh, does what their parents command and does not do what they forbid, and they must do it promptly. They must do it with respect. Parents must insist that they do it promptly and with respect. And the insistence part is important. What are the two extremes in parenting? The harsh, uh, demanding, and that might be expressed with volume, uh, uh, harshness in the tone, all kinds of ways that would be falling in the ditch over here. But what's the other extreme? Okay, permissiveness, indulgence, being lax and enforcing the rules. Oh, sweetie pie, don't let you know. I don't want to ever have you upset, so I'll do whatever it takes to keep you from crying. Um, that's the ditch on the other side, and we're called to stay on the road, to stay, to not be in either ditch. And so, what I would urge you to do is look at yourself and your. Where does your discipline style or your temptation to be in one of those ditches come from? All right, your, how you were raised, how, how, they, how, how things were done at your house with your parents. That's one way. What else might be a factor?
Okay, so the law could be a factor. I don't want to uh, discipline because I could get in trouble. Or that, Is that what you're saying, that kind of thing? Okay, what else? What about just your personality? You know, some people are more outgoing and exuberant. And we, we call think of extroverts. I don't necessarily like those terms, but it is a good way to just think about it. But someone else is more passive and quiet and easygoing. And... So you might, that, that personality trait might have sinful expressions when it comes to how you discipline your children. You just need to be aware of yourself and say, do I need to dial it back or do I need to dial it up? Okay. Am I too permissive or am I too demanding? Do I need to adjust this? Oftentimes what I need to adjust is 10% or 20% to get it in the sweet spot, to get it just right. How can you do that? Talk to your spouse. If you know that you're inclined to fall in this ditch, uh, you, you, on a sunny day, talk to your spouse and say, look, I know I'm inclined to get worked up uh, when these things happen. I need your help. I need you to give me the signal that I'm, I'm going too far that way. And of course, that, in, that assumes a good relationship between a husband and wife who are a team, maybe. I've seen couples this way where, uh, the wife was, the mother, was way too permissive, and the husband was way too insistent in his style. And because they were that way, they got worse and worse because she was compensating for his harshness and he was compensating for her softness. And it's particularly when the other one wasn't around. I'm going to make it up to you by going one way or the other. And so that that is kind of the worst of all worlds. Instead of working together, now we're working against each other. You think children figure out how to work that system? That's kind of like their full-time job. <laughs> yeah, that and flying under the radar uh, between the two. Work mom and dad against each other, and see you know if you can fly underneath. So the goal is children should desire to please their parents, just like we should desire to please God. We lo- we, we love Jesus. We keep His commandments. Um, and they should feel sorrow when they don't please their parents. And this, frankly, cannot be done without tears. Not just their tears, but your tears. Tears are part of it. Now, there should also be a lot of joy at the end of each week, but there will be some tears. Um, in other words, their orientation should be toward you, since you represent God, and remember the, one of the chief problems with children, and really with everybody, because we're all children at one level, is selfishness. That's what we're trying to overcome, is that I think the world revolves around me. So what happens when you get a parent who agrees with that? Yes, darling, the world does revolve around you. What can I do for you today? We're just feeding that beast. On the other hand, if we say you're, you're a selfish little brat, you know, a little viper that was... Uh, born in sin and uh, wretchedness, and I'm going to beat it out of you. I'm going to crush you. I am going to make sure you don't ever get to express any kind of willfulness on your part. I'm the boss of you. Sit down and shut up. Those are the extreme ditches that we're called. Neither of those are Christian. Neither of those represent God. I was reading an article this morning, actually, by John Frame uh, on gentleness in the ministry. 
And it's interesting, on the one hand, we have this picture of Jesus, for example, in Scripture, of him, usually we think of him turning over the tables in the temple or uh, dealing very directly with uh, some um, open rebellion or the Pharisee uh, rebuking something. Uh, and so we have this, on the one image, we have, a, have God, the picture of a just, wrathful man, uh, God who doesn't tolerate sin. Uh, he's holy. And uh, so that's one, one angle, if you will. But what else do we have? We have a gentle Savior, one who, when he deals with people who are in sin, does so with kindness and patience, the woman at the well, for example. Now, he doesn't ignore her sin. He says, go and sin no more. In fact, he puts his finger on her sin. He identifies it. So he's not afraid to deal with the sin, but he does it in a way that we see I like to think of it this way. Jesus is very intolerant, but he's very compassionate. Those are two different concepts. He doesn't, he doesn't change the standard. So in that sense, he's not tolerant. See, what, we live in a world where everybody wants you, I want you to tolerate me, which really means I want you to approve of whatever it is I want to do, even if it's sin. I want you to not get in my way. I want you to give me your stamp of approval so I can feel good about my sin. I want to do what I want to do, and I want you to make me feel good about it. And I can't do that. And God, why? Because I wouldn't be loving you if I did. Because sin will kill you. Sin destroys you and will destroy your future. And so I wouldn't be loving you as a parent if I, not, if I let you do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. And so I can't tolerate that but I can be a compassionate person. Yeah, he didn't get his nap today. Yes, he's only four. Uh, I'm going to be compassionate. Or it's an older person. He had a hard day. Hey, he's a teenager. You know, uh, Anybody here who's an adult like to be a teenager again? Why? You would. Okay, we got one. Maybe you still are. <laughs> okay. Um, why? Because you remember, do you remember how hard that could be? How, how well, I'm not going to insult teenagers right now, but I don't, no. <laughs> um, I was one. I know what that's like, and there's some advantages to it. Uh, if I could pick the parts of teenage that I could go back to, that would be different. But uh, if I had to have a whole package, that's a hard time in life. And, and we who are older as parents need to be compassionate at the same time, not put up with nonsense. So I think sometimes having a sharper definition and, and understanding our terms is helpful because when we blend those two, compassion and tolerance, that's where we get into trouble because now I start either compromising the standard because I've been told uh, I'm not compassionate um, and so when we blend those two concepts is where I, again, get in trouble. So I can be gentle in manner and resolute in purpose at the same time. I don't have to bend the standard to be kind, gracious, and understanding, and then still say, but no, you're not going to do that. No, I mean it. You're not going to do it. I mean, you're not going to do it now. (laughs) Do you understand me? 
and it's because I love you. But I'll listen, and we'll sit down and talk about it, and we'll work through this. But that's your job, parents, is to be wise enough to know the difference between those two. Young people, children, don't always know the difference in those two. All they know is they want it, and as far as they can see, they can't think of a good reason not to have it, and you're standing in their way. Um, so you, you're there to care for them, but not to cater to every desire. There should be an eagerness to obey without grumbling or complaint and without trying to match wits or wills. There is a time as, as children get older that you, you provide explanations. Those will not always work. Um, uh, so when you're dealing with a two-year-old, it's more often it's because I said so. I don't need to provide you an explanation of why your bedtime is what it is. But as they get older, if they are respectful and have questions and you've taught them how to ask questions, then providing some explanation might be helpful. You always can go back to because I said so. I'm still, you know, if the explanation wasn't adequate for you, you're going to have to trust me for now because it, it's, uh, you know, again, that's a process. Um, even when the child thinks their own reasons are better or that their own desires are reasonable, they must joyfully submit, joyfully submit to their parents' requirements. This is God's will for children. That's what the Bible says. Honor and obey your parents. This pleases the Lord. And that's ultimately who we're all called to please. So the Proverbs offer these directives to children. Proverbs 23, 22, Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. 13.1, A wise son heeds his father and father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. My son, uh, this is Proverbs 1, 8, 9, My son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. Notice in every case the reason for obeying parents Honoring and obeying is for your good. It's a blessing when you do that. Turns out you're happy. You get a good result. It is the parent's responsibility toward God. Remember, not just that I have uh, responsibility for my parents, but I have a duty toward God. I'm accountable to him to correct uh, their children when wrong, and it's the duty of the child to receive that correction as it is intended for their improvement. Now, I know um, this is, on paper, easier to do than it is in real life. There are a lot, of, a lot of things happening in relationships. But I was going to say, I have to have a picture of the ideal, even if I'm falling short of it. That's true of marriage. That's true of raising children. I need to know what would the perfect situation look like. Because that's what I'm shooting for. That's that's what we're working toward. And if I get 80% of the way there, then that's pretty good. Every day is not going to be ideal. Uh, but uh, we, the ideal, we don't. What we don't do is lower the standard. Say, well, I can only do 80% or 60%. So that's now the standard. Um, so the Bible says uh, that parents who will not correct their children hate them. 
Now, we live in a world that tries to tell us what love is and what hate is. It's all around us all the time. We're going to redefine love and hate. But woe to him who calls evil good and good evil. Hebrews tells us that only those who know the Bible, who've been worked out in the word of righteousness, can discern good and evil. So that's, the Bible defines what hatred is, and the Bible says that those who don't correct their children hate them. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Why? How is that an expression of love? What is the purpose of the law? What is, maybe another way to ask it. What is the summary of the law? Love. Love God and love your neighbor. That's it. All the law is there for the purpose of that, of those two goals. So when I insist that my children follow the law, presuming my laws are um, applications of the law of God in our home, including, you know, clean your plate, you know, do the dishes. Why? Because those are extensions of loving our neighbor, all the things God says, but now they take particular form in the household. So I need to be sure whatever rules I've got are actually reflections of that. And then at the end of the day, it's not the real answer to why I have to do this is not just because I said so. Is The answer is because this is how we love God and how we love one another. This is a, always has that goal. Such godly correction is designed to make the child better. And it's a sin and foolishness for a child to despise his parents for doing what God commands. It's good for you to remind your children that the reason you're requiring them to obey you is because that's what's necessary if you're going to obey God. I have, I'm accountable too. I'm doing this because God requires me to do this for you. God gave you to me to raise, and I have an, I'm accountable to him for doing that. So I should be modeling for my children what obedience and honor look like. The way I talk about God, the way I talk to God, uh, the way I live, all the things we do in our family, our children should have a clear perception that my mom and my dad do what they do, believe what they believe, go where they go, are friends with who they're friends with, uh, read what they read, all those things because they're honoring and obeying God. That's the model. Um, so the household, your household is foundational, and so we have to understand the nature of the institution but we must first also know what the goals and objectives of the household are. Often uh, we aim at vagueness and we hit it. To be vague is to be abstract and fuzzy. Uh, how many people want to be happy, successful? Uh, but what does that mean, to be happy and successful? So I know when I work with in premarital with couples, and they're thinking now about establishing a new household. And it's kind of cliched now, but, you know, a lot of planning goes into a wedding. 
But what's more important is the planning that goes into a marriage. The wedding is the starting line of the marathon. And it's not, it's not just who starts. The celebration's great. We've got to have a start. On your mark, get set, go. That's a wedding. Now you got the hard part is the next 26 plus miles. Um, it's who finishes and how they finish. And so, uh, having, planning that, so what I say to couples is you got to think about this. What kind of family, who do you want to be? Not just what do you want to do, but who do you want to be? Are you going to be a family that decides every week whether you're going to church? We decide that on Saturday night, Sunday morning. You're going to decide every every payday whether you're going to tithe. You're going to decide whether uh, every now and then whether we're going to have somebody over. We're going to decide. And yet, you know, I always say there's about ten things that you could just go ahead and decide before you get married. This is who we are. We pray together. We read the Bible together. We have people over. We tithe. We go to church. Um, you know, there, so eight or ten things that we just decided. That's who we are. Um, not just what we do. And we're going to start now, before we get married, doing those things so it becomes a habit. So we'll just do it the rest of our life and not think about it because now it's normal. Planning that in the same way with children. Planning what what are our goals? How are we going to kind of do a reverse engineering? What is your goal for your children? Do you want a godly young man and a godly young woman when they hit adulthood? Do you want them to marry well? Um, Again, some of this is cliche, but it's it's actually helpful. They're cliche for a reason. You're raising your grandchildren's parents. What kind of parents do you want them to be? So you have these this end game. This is what we want. Now we've got to reverse engineer it. Well, how would we get that? If I wanted to teach somebody woodworking how to use a lathe, if that was my goal is that they could turn a bowl on a lathe, I can back up and say, okay, how do, we, how do I get from tree stump to bowl and what, what skills do they need to learn? What do we need to practice? What do we need to know about safety and sharpening tools? And what tools do you need and vocabulary? And we could back that up and say, okay, here are the things we need to know. Here are the skills we need to have. How do we start now with a two-year-old to do that? But we keep that big picture in mind. So we need that map. And we have that big picture map, of course, in the Bible. Uh, we need that map to know how to get where we're going. And the goal is maturity. Maturity is selfless, which is another dimension of love. It's oriented toward others, God and neighbor, which means when they're throwing a fit in the floor because they didn't get something they wanted and they wanted it right now and you didn't deliver it, what are you going to do about that? What's at stake? You could just give it to them and shut them up and get past it and not have to deal with that. There are multiple ways to deal with that, but if you don't see what's at stake, and especially if you don't see that on a regular basis, and you develop the habit of not addressing that, is that the kind of adult you want to hang out with? 
or that anybody else wants to hang out with? Of course not. Um, So maturity is selfless, oriented toward others. It takes responsibility. It does its duty, and thereby it brings respect. The world is full of immature adults who are selfish and irresponsible. And frankly, in most cases, we'd say their parents failed, and we don't respect them. We may love them. We may pity them. But respect is a different level. So the goal is to bring to bear such moral influence on our children by all lawful means, and what I mean is in any way the Bible says we can, but not in ways the Bible says we can't, to see them choose obedience for themselves. The goal is self-governed adults, self-governed under God. We want them to have the right standard, a biblical standard, to be followers of Christ so that when they leave and walk out the door, they don't need me looking over their shoulder to be sure they do the right thing. Are they going to fail and stumble? Absolutely. Okay? And then we're going to back up and we're going to talk about it and we're going to grow and we're going to learn and we're going to forgive and we're going to start again. And uh, boy, am I glad that God gave me a whole bunch of people in my life who knew me back then <laughs> uh, who have been very kind and gracious and patient and helped me get to the other side. I'm not indicating I've arrived yet, but uh, it's, you know what I'm saying. I think all of us could probably, most of us could say that, if not all of us. Um, so, um, the goal is to bring to bear such moral influence on our children uh, that they will learn the greatest freedom, that the greatest freedom comes from living in the sphere of God's word. God's law, just doing what God says to do, avoiding what he says to avoid, like the train's freedom while running on the tracks. So um, let me see where we are here. I'm going to give you five things. I think I can get through these real quick. Parents have been given what they need. Number one, uh, there is repetition. Even though we have, uh, have to repeat a lesson many times and make some mistakes along the way, Nevertheless, the fact that God has given us such a long time to train our children is a great advantage. We can be patient and gentle while resolutely pursuing the goal of godliness in them. Time is an asset when it comes to the training of the will, the instruction of the mind, the development of the reason, the cultivation of taste and sensitivities, and the maturing of the character. Such length of time leaves parents Uh, who fail without an excuse. In other words, I don't have to get all this done in two weeks. Got a lot of time. And again, there's going to be failures along the way, uh, but we get up and we do the next right thing. Second, parents also have the advantage of the total dependence of the child, particularly when we start when they're infants and toddlers and little children. Uh, Your child is born completely helpless. Its instincts for the parents are extremely strong, And as a result, parents have the opportunity to establish the principle of respect long before the child can form any serious resistance. Uh, We often deal with teenagers who should have learned these things before they were teenagers. Um, 
This is why it's so important for new parents to seize the opportunity, not caving in to every demand of your child, uh, not being uh, tempted to excuse the misconduct of the child due to the cute factor or the sleepy factor or any number of other such factors where we can excuse sinful behavior. Willful. I like James Dobson's, um, in his book, Dare to Discipline, uh, he says we should learn to distinguish between willful rebellion and childful, childish irresponsibility. You know, two-year-olds are two-year-olds, okay? And we allow for that. But we don't excuse sinful when it, when it becomes stomping your foot and telling daddy no, that's, that's a sin. And we, 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 we have to know the difference in those things. So the child is naturally impatient and self-centered, and this can soon express itself in stubbornness and defiance. We got a number of infants around right now in mom's arms, and uh, I always like to remind myself, and usually them too, uh, they're in the planning stage right now. Um, they're, they can't get across the room and, and do damage, um, but I'm being a little silly here, but I always figure they're just sitting around looking like, as soon as I can be mobile, I'm going for that vase. Um, and uh, I'm going to check it out. Um, and so don't be lulled into thinking that they're innocent. Um, they're yours, and you love them, but the innocent, they're not. Um, they're just like you. That's the problem. Um, so this can soon express itself again in stubbornness, defiance, yet parents must recognize the child also has an awareness that he needs the parent's protection and care. I learned later in life that my mom said, especially when we were teenagers, uh, when we were upset with them, uh, she said, I'd tell your dad he will need us before we need him. Um, that's a good thing to remember, parents. Uh, so... Um, your uh, parents, you control the situation, you have the power, you're the provider, you're the protector, you set the terms for having needs met, not your child. Third, parents have the advantage of the supreme ignorance of their child. They are born knowing virtually nothing. You are in the position of providing them with information and the environment wherein they will gain all the knowledge they have this is the stuff that their worldview will be built from. You get to shape their loves. When this fact is considered in light of the fact that children naturally look up to their parents, we see a powerful uh, force of influence. It's something close to worship. Therefore, the early training of your children is made easier than at any other time in their lives. Fourth, parents should not make the mistake of thinking a child must know and understand before obedience is required. Your child's will and desires find expression long before they have knowledge and understanding and certainly before they have wisdom. Your children should obey you whether they understand or not. Sound reason and judgment on the part of the child should not be waited on. When a child learns phonics, they can often read and pronounce a word before they know its meaning. Or a child may be able to give back the answer to a catechism question. Who made you? Long before they, are, they can conceive of God. 
Likewise, obedience to parents should be an established habit that precedes understanding. I had a boss who said, if I tell you to jump, you ask me how high on the way up. Um, and that's kind of the principle there. Likewise, obedience should be established uh, before understanding. Many adults haven't learned this lesson yet, demonstrating the fact that they never learned it from their parents. God's given legitimate authority to various people in the world, and those authorities are to be shown respect and obeyed whether we think their rules to be reasonable or not. When the legitimate authority is resisted, we and our children are resisting God. And fifth, parents have a constant oversight of their children. Parental oversight is the closest thing to omnipresence that there is. The supervision of love, seeking to provide providential protection. Like we say of God himself, in him we live and move and have our being, so too uh, the child should regard the watchful eye of parents, particularly little children. You are responsible for your children all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You may not abdicate your responsibility of oversight, turn your ch- children over to unknown or unapproved forces. That includes schools, friends, television, phones, iPads, and whatever else is out there now to steal your children. There is no portion of your child's life where you are free to look the other way. So we're out of time. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your teaching us about the nature of our children and about our own nature, about our responsibility and duty as parents, about children's duty and responsibility to honor and obey. Lord, you know our frailties. You know our failures. But you also, Lord, are a God full of grace and mercy. And so, Lord, we ask for that. We ask for your help, your strength, your instruction, uh, your kindness to us, your uh, help in this important and essential task of raising children. We ask your blessings on us and now on us as we prepare to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.